Welcome to Burn News Current Affairs Podcast with Jeremy Deacon. Listen at your leisure on www.burnnews.com. Joining me today is the relatively new Minister of National Security, Jeff Barron. Uh, thanks very much uh, for sparing some time, uh, Mr. Barron. Good morning, Jeremy. Good morning. Um, how long now have you been a minister, or the Minister of National Security, I should say? So we're, we're approaching three months. Three months. Uh, it'll be three months this, this week, the 13th. And how have, how have you found it? I mean, what, what have you discovered? Anything of interest? Well, of course, you know, I think when you, being the junior minister for uh, two and a half years and then, and then moving up into the minister role, you know, there's a lot of, I think, uh, known expectations. And, and frankly, I think th- there's a, a strong you know, normative presumption from the public, but also my colleagues in politics, that I, I'd be able to fill that role w- without having uh, lost too much contextual uh, intelligence. You know, so it's a role that I, I slotted into knowing the people who I'm working with, uh, the hundreds and hundreds of civil servants that work in the ministry, and, and frankly, the very daunting basket of challenges that was before us. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think... Um, Probably one of the biggest surprises, if you will, is the the amount that I'm actually enjoying it. I really do uh, love coming to work every day, and it is an everyday job. You know, where we have uh, you know issues on uh, relating to crime, uh, whether it's a fire service issue, a corrections issue. It really is an everyday job, which I'm sure most of the uh, cabinet ministers would would share. But uh, I do really enjoy. Uh, getting out there and not only speaking with the public and hearing from them about what the uh, their issues are, what their concerns are, but also the the men and women who, frankly, underwrite our public safety in Bermuda, and those are the ones who are working over the holidays, the shifts, etc. In, in my experience, uh, the deputies, as it were, always have their own ideas of how things should be done or have their own ideas for different policies. Um, can we expect anything from you uh, in the coming uh, months and years? Well, yeah, I new think policies, a change of direction. I think one of the exciting things, um, again, now sitting in the the, the minister's office here, uh, and 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 welcome to the the Ministry of National Security, of course. And for those of you who are listening, and I know that many will, you know, just to scene set a little bit, we are in a, a really high tech office here, and Jeremy's had to go through at least five retina scans, uh, and I've had to give Mr. him. Mr. Barron the- is joking. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Um, I think one of the exciting things uh, that uh, I get to it really craft the throne speech initiatives. And, you know, I've made no uh, surprise or apologies for my position on the need to pivot towards social engagement. You know, I really do feel that the more we engage and empower the community uh, with crime reduction strategies, that the, the, the longer and more meaningful those strategies will be. So, so is that something you'd be looking to do more of? Absolutely. And do your ministerial work? Absolutely. I, you know, looking at uh, restorative justice and how that interplays with uh, the, the corrections department's uh, ethos, which it does, and, and frankly, it's being done now. You know, you have the prison fellowship who, done, who do remarkable things within the corrections facility beyond just providing uh, inmates and staff spiritual guidance uh, and some direction. Uh, They also help with restorative justice, and I want to look at how we can expand that and how we can continue that, Um, but from a criminal justice 
uh, overview, I think restorative justice really does have a place here in, in Bermuda. And I think. Can you just explain exactly what that is to the listeners? Well, you know, I, you know, to simplify it, I guess it, it's it's to take, uh, you know, status quo. I, I can't even say that because Bermuda. Uh, I, well, we're not, we're not forward leaning with this, but I think we've accepted it and embraced it in the last few years. Restorative justice really is um, recognizing that, you know, the 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 cause and effect, you know, doesn't always uh, reduce or impact crime, and particularly doesn't heal the society. And so, when someone commits an offense, uh, again, the reflexive response, appropriately, of course, is that there is a report. The police attend. Uh, the police take action. That person, the uh, they will go through the criminal justice system, uh, and if they are found by a judge or a jury to have. Uh, in their opinion, committed that offense, they then go to either a, a corrections facility or they go through a certain system. At no point in that in that process is there any, um, I suppose, engagement with the victims. There's no integration with victim offender um, conversations. There's nothing like that. And I think restorative justice doesn't mean well. If I go and apologize to the lady I robbed last week, then I'll get off. It's beyond that. It's actually happening whilst they're in the corrections facility. And if we... Ex- well, so the, learning, the, the inmates are learning about um, the, the, what happened Absolutely. to the victim and how it's affected them. They, they get to sit down just like we are right now. Right. They get to sit down and hear from the victim how they felt when they were being assaulted or they were being robbed or how it felt and the uh, after effects of course absolutely and how they still live with that and there's you know nine times out of ten there's a significant impact that's made on both of them and and, you know the the victim walks away often with a new appreciation for you know the offender's behavior and past uh, the offender's um, perhaps reasons why the offender came into a life of crime, um, which is which is nice. It's not critical, but the the uh, the flip side to that is that the offender uh, is is hearing from a, a member of the public, you know, perhaps a neighbor, sometimes a family member, about about how they impacted their lives mm-hmm. and how they still live with that. So if, if we agree that, you know, the, the whole point of uh, sending someone to the corrections facilities just to do that is to correct, uh, then I believe restorative justice has a really important role going forward with us because this, this young man, de- you, know, you know, depending on what the crime actually <clears throat> is, will likely be back into society. And we want that, that person, uh, man or woman, whoever's mm. uh, involved, we want that person to have a better appreciation for the impact that even you know, the, what he or she may perceive as a victimless crime actually does have a, uh, an impact on society as a whole. And that's, I think, restorative justice can capture that. Um, it's kind of leads on, I was going to come to this... Uh topic later on but it's, this leads on quite well because the recidivism rate yeah. is already is falling in Bermuda which is obviously very good news and, and the Premier uh, decided to pledge some time ago to close one of the prisons 
Um, where, 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 um, what progress is being made on that? Well, we've looked at that, and that was a throne speech initiative from mm. this year, and how we can, you know, so recognizing that the inmate population is just about half of what it was four or five years ago. And, and so appreciating that and looking at why that is, because, of course, what we don't want to do is to just say, well, it's half of what it is, so let's just close half. You know, a hotel doesn't close half of the hotel for good simply because they've had low occupancy rates. They have to understand why that is and then make projections. I think we're at a stage now in the ministry where we are continually comfortable with the social programs that are ongoing in the corrections facility, in the community itself, um, and the efforts by the law enforcement community. You know, it, so all of those three crime reduction prevention arms uh, are doing a pretty good job. So we're pretty comfortable that the current levels, you know, plus or minus uh, a few, uh, will, will remain where they are now. And so, again, the initiative, uh, the throne speech initiative, was to look at how viable it would be to begin to close down other uh, areas of the corrections facility. And one of the one of the areas that was looked at uh, was the farm facility. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, again, when you're looking at bricks and mortar, it's easy to sort of say, well, I guess you know, we don't have the need uh, for, for that entire building, so let's just close it down. We can save money on, on electricity and rent. But there's an intrinsic value to having those types of, mm-hmm. uh, those types of programs. Uh, and I call it a program because... We're talking about closing facilities, and I think it's more important to talk about closing programs. The farm facility, at the end of the, uh, this viability test, at the end of the study, and the, uh, the Commissioner of Corrections said a few important things, but ultimately what stuck with me was that the farm facility provides such a massive incentive, incentive towards the, uh, the inmates that, that go there that 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 incentive alters behavior in such a positive way. If we were to take those avenues away, if we were to start to closing these off-ramps down for inmates, um, we may actually see uh, the inmate population mm-hmm. rise. Recidivism mm-hmm. rates rise again. Mm-hmm. So at, at this stage, I think it's probably more appropriate for me to share um, that I'm not inclined to just start closing down buildings for the sake of saving, you know, a few thousand dollars. Uh, I'd like to look at how we can repurpose them uh, and perhaps expand some of those, some of those programs uh, that are actually making a big impact within the correction facility so to keep numbers down. So you're not actually talking about closing uh, buildings and you're talking about expanding programs in those buildings? That's, that's where I'm at right now. So as of today, that's precisely what my perspective is on that matter. And, and so, you know, we get, again, the, the premier... So it's um, repurposing the existing buildings for something else. Potentially. You know, we have to, again, we have to look at how, uh, what, what's going to suit that. How, how, how viable is that now? But I can say that after looking at, um, you know, closing down purpose-built or non-purpose-built facilities around uh, the corrections facility... If it's impacting a program, then I'm not inclined to do that. And I, I'm not inclined to, to just, you know, for the sake of dollars and cents, close down something that is uh, proven to incentivize uh, inmates to alter their behavior in a very, very positive way. The whole point of them going to the corrections facility, Jeremy, is so that they can go 
you know, perhaps some, some atonement. A lot of them see that. And, and the incentive to then return to society uh, after showing uh, not just the correction staff and their families who visit them, but frankly proving to themselves that they, they can actually make these choices and break mm. some of those cycles. Just carrying on the theme of, of crime and, and, and dealing with crime, um, the OBA did promise to, quote, disrupt and dismantle violent ga- gang activity uh, by fully funding and implementing focused crime reduction strategies. Um, first of all, just talk me through uh, where Bermuda is, I suppose, in terms of uh, gang-related activity. What, what are the latest developments there? Can you talk about that a bit? Sure. You know, I think one of the, per- the first things uh, I, I had done in the end of May was a full assessment uh, and intelligence updates on where we are as far as um, gangs in Bermuda, as far as smaller crews, uh, and how, so I can compare and contrast to frankly measure how we've disrupted, how we've dismantled some of these uh, criminal networks. And I'm quite pleased with the progress that we've made. Uh, Statistically, again, you know, we have the firearms fatalities and injuries year by year. You know, we are, you know, well down from, you know, peak times of 2009, 10, 11, even into 12. Uh, again, some of the robbery in Bermuda, the same stats year by year. Uh, we are well down from peak year. I think the peak year was 2008. There was a tremendous amount of robbery uh, in Bermuda. So. You know, where we are now is that we have uh, sort of a, a, moving, uh, a moving target. Uh, the, some of the crews have rebranded. Some of the crews have expanded into different uh, areas. And there's just frankly some new, um, some new people who've emerged in, onto the scene who don't have the legacy attachments. So they'll say, oh, I, I recognize that name. And you know when you so look at a new gang that's emerged. Uh, essentially, yeah. You know we have um, you know again Rangers 110 Southside. That's that's a that's sort of a new uh, pockets of that is is new. You and know. That, okay. Right. And, and you look at some of the uh, some of the the active uh, participants. Uh, I, I, you know, these these members who are carrying out uh, violent acts. The, the, they're, they're all I know of them are their uh, police uh, arrest photos. And many of them are in school uniforms, which is very telling. You know, it's telling because, you know, they're, they're not just new on the scene, but they're starting uh, at a younger age. So there's really, you know, we've always, we've always looked at, um, you know, gangs. And back, you know, in the early 2000s, uh, referred to as loosely organized groups. You know, we didn't want to say gangs yet in Bermuda, which I think is a mis- was a mistake. However, um, there was always some understanding of of what they were doing and why they were doing it. And so, when I look at these young men who are 17, 18 right now, who've either left school um, or or were thrown out of school, um, who are involved now, you know, when when Shunday Jones was was murdered in Dockyard in 2004, they were they were a, a young, young child. You know, they were, they were, you know, they have no, they, they have very little understanding about what those sort of background uh, contextual issues are. And that makes uh, things a little bit more complicated because, you know, of course, we don't expect the police to, 
predict where the next shooting is going to take place. What we do is a continual risk assessment, and mm -hmm. we look at large-scale events. Um, we look at the intelligence right now, not just on you know the digital arena, social media, etc., but also what's happening on, on the streets themselves, mm -hmm. from the officers and and from from other sources. Um, and, and and sometimes it's difficult to uh, to really put the grease to the squeak all the time, particularly when you have this moving feast. Absolutely. But just, just going back there, you're talking about the gangs, you're talking about new gangs uh, emerging. Um, but the OBA's pledge was to dismantle gangs and violent, uh, violent gang activity. H how much is it being dismantled, or is it just a question of it's being disrupted? So what the, what the intelligence briefing uh, told me was that there were over 100, 150 less gang members in Bermuda today than there were five years ago. And that's, and that's for a few reasons. Uh, and those reasons are because the person's been killed, the person's been incarcerated, uh, the person has moved to a different jurisdiction, is not active in Bermuda physically, uh, or you know, they have made other choices through, or, or, and they're ready for you know, sort of another assessment by the police. And so for those reasons, there are, there are um, a lot less people who are involved in gangs. Now, that doesn't make the challenges any uh, easier. You know, it be, the, the fact that we have uh, these three main crews right now um, doesn't make it any easier. But if we were sitting in my office looking at that same map with all of the pins stuck on it where these geographical uh, spatial crime clusters are, it would it, five years ago that would be it'd be all over the map. There'd be uh, there'd be a few out in the east, St. George's, Hamilton Parish. Uh, there'd be two separate ones in Pembroke. Um, you'd have White Hill. I mean, you'd have a lot more going on there. And so, the, it's fair to say you're claiming a relative success. I am very comfortable with the progress that we're making, and I'm extremely comfortable that the group violence reduction strategy that we have now um, is making. A significant progress, and I'm gonna. I'm, I am not uh, going to reverse the truck right now. I think I'm going to continue this because, what the the, uh, in in my opinion, again, the law enforcement community has done a tremendous job with what they have to do. But the biggest difference, Jeremy, is that the social engagement, um, the level of conversation that is happening now on a social level and in a community response level is unprecedented. It's never happened to this extent before. And so when we have um, not only a, a shooting, uh, a violent event where tensions boil over, um, we have a community response to that. But even before that, when tensions get to a certain level, um, you, you know, there are, there are many social agencies now uh, that are actually out there to calm that down. It's not just a, what are the, what are the police doing about this? Sure. No, I understand that. Unfortunately, we, still, we are still seeing a spate of violent uh, robberies. Do you think there'll come a time uh, when, say, we'll get back to sort of 2,000 levels in terms of gang activity, in terms of uh, violent robberies, armed robberies? You know, it's or funny. It, or is this here to stay? I don't believe it is. I don't believe it is. And I think that, there, you know, again... I had made a statement in Senate about two weeks ago, um, you know, asking the public, you know, can we break the cycle? And I think that 
I, you know, I continue to I speak to people on the street, and they and they will comment about uh, how they felt about that. And I think it was, you know, it was pretty progressive in the way that, um, again, I'm reminding uh, the general public, and frankly, I'm inviting them to be more a part of that conversation. And I'm inviting everybody, you know, demographics who, who frankly don't. You know, live in those areas that are mostly impacted. They don't. They don't have to drive through. You know, or cut through a police crime tape so they can pull into their driveway. I'm inviting everyone in there. So I don't. I don't believe that. You know, these things are just here to stay. And I would never uh, tell a, a family or a, the general public that, hey, look, we just need to sort of accept this as a way of life now in Bermuda, and we'll we'll get through it. That's absolutely not what I'm. I'm here to say. Because um, you, you made the point yourself that a lot of these uh, kids who are being recruited to the gangs are in school uniform. Sure. So they're recruiting very at a young age. They're, they're having people coming through from a young age that's, right. that's going to sustain the gang in terms of longevity. Which is, which is precisely why, and you're right, and that's precisely why we've done that social engagement part. So we've, we've, we've sort of accepted in the ministry that, you know, look, the police are doing a fantastic job with the response, emergency response, intelligence gathering, um, and preparing files for court. But we made that pivot towards the engagement and the empowerment in schools, in the Ministry of Education, you know, training teachers how, you know, sort of, you know, issues and flags to look out for. Um, you know, I had a conversation with a 10-year-old early on um, in, in my political career. And, you know, I asked the, the 10-year-old who, uh, what he wanted to do when he grew up and, and he said to me, I'd like to be an actuary or I'd like to be a leader of a gang. And after I paused, I said, well, why do you want to be those two things? And he said, well, because they both make a lot of money and they both get good-looking girls. So there's, there's this attraction to the gang lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think after that conversation, uh, I met with uh, the Interagency Gang Task Force uh, partners, Kim Jackson, Martha Dismont, my uh, my staff, Vernon Weirs, and I said, we have to look at not just disrupting and dismantling uh, the gangs themselves, but we have to pull these uh, young Bermudians, male and female, uh, and make this an unattractive, uh, you know, uh, way of life. Because for, for some, it's... it's uh, they're, they're trying, this is their status attainment. They have no other ways, because of other issues, they have no other ways of, of getting a cool car. You yeah. know, they, they failed at school, you know, they have no other ways to impress a girl. Uh, whatever the reasons are, you know, it's still looked at as an attractive option, I think. And, and the more and more we penetrate those schools, the more and more we penetrate uh, and, and utilize folks in mirrors, the family center who reaches out to these people daily, um, and understand a bit why, a bit more as to why these young men and women w would make these choices, then I think the, the recruiting is going to be majorly disrupted. You know, but, you know, I said to the, to the police four years ago um, uh, at one of their, uh, their retreats, you know, for their strategic, uh, you know, the year going forward, you know, what should we focus on, they asked. And I said, marketing. And I qualified that because I said, you know, I can go into YouTube right now and I can watch a video for 
one of the gangs in Bermuda. It's a recruiting tool. Mm -hmm. it, you know, everyone in it looks cool. Mm -hmm. They get a couple of cool lyrics and rap and all that stuff. But I can't watch anything uh, attracting you know young people to join the Bermuda Police Service. I can't find a commercial. I can't find any type of recruiting tool. So you know, the the the, the longer that goes out there, the longer that's that is status quo. Which, which and those things have changed. But the longer that was, you know, we recognize that it's going to continually. We're going to just feeding this, and and the and the faces you see uh, involved now just would just simply change, and and the gangs move home address. That's all that would happen, mm -hmm. and that's and and that's certainly not the entire point. Just just changing tack slightly, but keeping on the theme of crime. Um, the one there was one promise from the OBA to develop crime maps online. And I think it, I think the quote was to inform and empower citizens with the latest incidents of crime and antisocial behaviour in their neighbourhoods. Sure. Is anything happening with that? You know, that was one of the things that I was really interested in. Um, crime mapping is utilised a lot, I know, in the UK, mm. and uh, essentially it's also given to the local media as well very often. Yeah. Well, you know, here's the thing. So you can type in. Um, I'll, let me explain a bit about what crime mapping is, and then perhaps um, talk a bit about where we are at with that. Uh, and the reasons for that. So if you go on to, um, uh, I, I guess you could Google crime mapping UK, you know, you could punch in, you know, certain district or, or, or a postal code, and it would show uh, a, a map of that area, and it would have certain flags or dots mm -hmm. on certain areas, not, not pinpointed for security reasons, uh, and it would show you uh, where crimes have occurred, uh, you know, what types of crime. Was it a... You know, a, a, an expressive crime was it something you know involving violence or willful damage, or, um, or was it um, a theft? Something like that. So you can actually pinpoint where it is, and beyond that, the public can then click onto that and find out what the status of that crime is. That's right. So you can find out. Oh, I understand that someone was arrested for that in May, uh, and they're due to go to court. Oh, that's interesting. And, and I and you know for me. Um, the, the more that the public is engaged uh, with these types of things, the more that they are given uh, the information on uh, some of these issues, uh, then I think the more that they are able to um, feel empowered but also have a say in how their neighborhoods and their wider community can and should be policed. So is this something that's still on the, on the cards or not? Or is it, has it disappeared? Well, you know, I'm still looking at it. And, well, and budgetary restrictions. No, you so. know, I, I, I have to understand, again, you know, it was, it was, it was something that I was interested in. And, um, you know, now that I'm the minister, I'll take another look at that and how viable that is. And I think I, I don't, I wouldn't describe, you know, crime mapping as simply aspirational. And, and uh, well, you know, we'll just go ahead and drop a few million into it. If the, if the technology is there, um, I'd like to continue to explore that. But this is, that, that was, again, sitting in the, ch in the chair just under three months, you know, with, with a, a, a variety of uh, challenges uh, presented to me within my first week. Uh, crime mapping was not on the, uh, the top of it. But it's certainly something that's for those very reasons, for the empowering reasons, for the engaging reasons, um, that I'm continually looking at how viable that could be. Because part of it is not engaging, isn't it? Part of it, policing, uh, for talking about the police and crime reduction, is reassurance of the community. Of course. And I think that, you know, when someone can look at, um, you know, certain uh, clusters of crime in certain areas, uh, they can, it, it not only tells 
a, the public, um, you know, where where some of these issues are. But it, I think it, you know, policing is intelligence led. And so if, um, you know, I, I don't expect the police to spread themselves out across the entire island, policing the entire island equally, because, frankly, there are more crimes in certain areas than mm-hmm. there are in other areas. And, again, it's putting the grease on that squeak. So, you know, something like, you know, crime mapping, which I know the intelligence division, the police obviously do. They, they know they, do, yes. they can look at those things. Yeah. So, so I think w- what the... Uh, what the idea was was to take those and, and perhaps a, a more cleansed version and, and offer that to the public themselves. So again, I'm still looking at how viable that would be, and, and that would require um, you know further conversation with the police within the ministry as well. Just on this, following a similar, similar theme, um, there's, every now and again it, it crops up as a, as a, as a topic. That's uh, the sex offenders register. Sure. Is that um, is that something that could work in Bermuda, or is it just too small? You know, it's it seems like a, such a, uh, a poison chalice issue. But my, here, here's here's my position on that. You know, the 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 crimes that are committed are so heinous, and I, I'm loath to think about. Um, you know the various arguments, and this is one of those topics where you can get into a very philosophical argument about, you know, are we impinging on the human rights of the offender? Are we? Uh, how are we? How are we um, disrupting um, the, the patterns? And you can get into a really philosophical argument. At the end of the day, though, we're having that conversation because, um, you know. It, sex offenders list is a would cover a wide variety of, of various offenses, but but all of them uh, are are quite heinous. And I think that if you ask someone, and I've had, you know, I've spoken out on it before, and I've had many people contact me and share their personal stories unsolicited. And I can tell you, you know, whether it happened three years ago or thirty years ago, that is something that never leaves them. And particularly when we're dealing with um, with children, mm. um, when we're dealing with very vulnerable persons, mm. uh, I, I understand that it has to be a very intellectual and legal uh, case presented as to why uh, we should or we shouldn't have a, uh, a sex offender's list, uh, list uh, that is accessible to the public. But at the end of the day, if... If, if we are satisfied that, one, these crimes cannot continue to happen in the darkness and shadows of society, um, we as a society should not uh, continue or to in, in any way enable um, the secrets uh, these secrets to, to, to continue. Now, look, you know, some so, of the... But yes or no, though, is it something you would favor or something not? I certainly feel strongly that if if this is something that's going to uh, prevent or drastically reduce and help us understand um, getting uh, in, to the issues, I completely support that. And, and frankly, I support it also because I believe at this very stage, uh, based on you know research that I've done and conversations that I've had, not only would that go a long way in... Uh, I believe uh, reducing 
some of these uh, some of these uh, crimes and behaviors. It would also help provide, uh, I think, much needed mental health assistance to those who are uh, committing these offenses. And, and frankly, would be so um, uh, inclined to do that. You know, I I really do think, you know, while <laughs> while I have sympathy. Uh, tremendous sympathy for those who have gone through uh, this these types of crimes and have been violated in a very, very dark and, and uh, heinous way. I also believe that if we really are serious about reducing and and uh, and preventing uh, uh, sexual offenses from happening, particularly with children, particularly with vulnerable people, that we must be able to provide an avenue of mental health uh, and and overall help for these offenders. And instead of just looking at, well, let's let's catch, convict, and incarcerate. Well, there's another problem altogether, isn't it? The, the mental health treatment of inmates. Well, it's you know, issue I, altogether, and I'm not sure we've got time to go onto that issue. But that I, that I, could I, be I, our part too. But I think <laughs> I'm certainly I'm certainly encouraged by some of the steps that we've taken that uh, that the mental health of prisoners. And you have you know some of the champions like Saul Dismont, who one of the lawyers, is is certainly um, done a good job with creating more awareness around that because at the end of the day you know when we have uh, inmates in co-ed or in the corrections facility um, who frankly should be looking at being treated because of significant mental health challenges um, then I I think it it behooves us uh, to to really move on that. Well then that Okay, we're going to get into that. That that means an expansion of the budget in that area, though, and I don't, I don't suppose that's actually going to happen anytime soon. Potentially, you know, but again, I, I think, you know, we've uh, we've 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 been doing a pretty good job with trying to to make you know necessary um, cuts to 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 really get Bermuda back, um, and to really, uh, I, I think. Um, make those necessary adjustments so that the all ministries and all governments, you know, we, we haven't we haven't done enough, of course, because we simply can't, you know. And I think, you know, these are you know these are these are some significant issues that the finance minister has, and and thankfully I do not. But as as the minister, I have to make sure that you know the the budget for the public safety product in Bermuda is is well managed, and it is. But also when I'm looking at some of our very daunting uh, challenges that we have on the island. I, I, I need to make sure that, that the men and women who are underwriting our public safety have uh, the tools, the training, the equipment, whatever they need to make sure that they can do their jobs uh, as safely and as effectively as possible because it matters to the public, not just to them. Talking about equipment, um, we had a case recently on Front Street with a fire where it turned out the... Uh, I don't know what I can't remember what it's called to be honest, but the big uh, yeah, the ladder truck. It's called the Bronto. That's sort of the colloquial name for is, it. Is out of action. It is, which raises the question: Then is the fire brigade equipped currently to say deal with a fire on board a cruise ship or, or a big multi-story office complex? Well, they have you know a, a, a lot of other equipment, particularly uh, to deal with things on the water. So you know, not to get into the weeds of things, um, but the issue with the Bronto is that this is a vehicle that costs $1.3 million. And so clearly we have to look at how we can, um, how we can address that uh, as appropriately as possible. And, and you, know, you know, the timing right now, of course, we're going into the budget discussions with the fire service. I've spoken with the chief uh, a few times since 
uh, the actual fire on front streets, not just to thank him and, and, the, and the team, but to also understand, you know, in a very, very clear way what their challenges were on that day. Uh, and, you know, should that happen again, what can we expect as far as, um, you know, the, the responses as well? So what was, what was his what was his reply? Look, he, he was um, he was very clear about uh, the initial team, uh, the A, uh, the A crew, the response team who was on duty that day. Uh, their uh, their their leader at the time made a very good decision about uh, where to, to put the uh, to, to put the staff to put the water and to put the apparatuses and, and, and made a huge difference. You know, at the end of the day, um, there was a need for the ladder truck when it was originally purchased. Uh, again, I'd like to think that those same reasons are still there. And you know, as the minister, but it's probably more paramount because Hamilton's getting taller and taller and taller. You know, and, and I think our um, our challenges and what the fire service have to deal with have only expanded, as well as EMTs, as well as corrections, as well as customs. Everyone, ev- everyone's role has expanded uh, so drastically in the last ten years. And so, you know, I've made no um, uh, uh, nothing opaque. I've been very clear. I want to make sure that they have the equipment that they need to make sure that they get the job done. And if the chief is consistently telling me, look, we have to absolutely have to have this vehicle, then, you know, we're going to have to look at is, how is we he, make. Is how, he telling you that? Uh, you know, we're, we're, those conversations are still um, being had out because we, what we're trying to do, we've looked at how we can fix the vehicle. And at the end of the day, the the uh, uh, the the company has said, you know, we think that it's at the end of its life. And so now there are conversations with the same manufacturer about um, how we can re-engage them uh, and also bring the cost down. Because uh, right now, a $1.3 million uh, vehicle is obviously going to make a significant impact on the fire service budget. And now, look, we, you know, I want to also say that the, in every single budget session since uh, I've been the junior minister, we've had... Not one question uh, raised about uh, the the fire service budget is X. You know why is it that way? So, you know I, I get I get when the criticism comes out. I understand that you know when the opposition make uh, certain. It's just know, this has highlighted I, I, a particular I, fault. Uh, well, no, wrong word. A particular issue with the fire service, and it doesn't seem to have access to a fairly vital piece of equipment. You know, I, and I think that when you know now that we're clear about what those issues are, I can I can assure uh, the public and certainly the fire service, as I have uh, in the last few days of conversation, that I'm looking at uh, very creative ways to address those things. And so there was there was uh, you know some equipment needed that needs to be repaired like an ambulance. The ambulance needs some upgrades and repairs and another vehicle as well. I'm going to make sure that I sort that out. And you know, if that, I have to get creative and, and, uh, and find ways of doing that um, you know, before we are debating a budget in April, then, in March, then, then so be it. Because again, I've, t- I've, I've told them that my expectation is that they attend work, they're able to do their jobs uh, as safely and as effectively as possible for themselves. But it's also for the general public as well. There's a when when someone calls nine one one, they don't want to hear. Well, I'd like to be able to help you out. I just don't. I can't really drive there right now. You know, that's not. That's certainly not uh, acceptable in any society, and it's certainly not success, uh, acceptable here. We have a very high expectation of our 
men and women in the fire service, and we should because they're very professional and they're good at what they do. And we saw that on Front Street. Just sort of continuing the theme, I suppose. Um, I believe the OBA's election promise in 2012 was actually to reopen the St George's Police Station on a full-time basis. That hasn't happened, and you've pretty much ruled it out. I have, and I've said repeatedly that you know when we look at um, uh, when we look at the current. the policing strategy, when we look at the Southside Police Station, when we look at the amount of crimes that are happening in St. George's, um, I believe, you know, really what we have to focus on is increased visibility, increased officers in the town of St. George's. And, and a great example of that, and, and, and frankly, days after I said that at a town hall meeting, um, there was a robbery at Vera Picard, an armed robbery. It was the last armed robbery we had. It was the 22nd of June, and uh, it happened... And there were a number of uniformed officers on duty right in the square who attended right away. A person's being put in court, um, and I believe uh, that uh, many, if not all, of the, the items uh, were, well, at least items that fit the description of the store were seized and recovered. So, so th again, that tells us that the, what is needed is that increased and sustained visibility in the town of St. George's. Okay, but has there been an increased and sustained visibility in the town of St. George's? Well, there has been lately, and I think that was one lately. of the... That, well, this, of course, has been going on for a long time. Well, I, I, it's, been, it's been going on since it closed, and I believe it closed in 2007. You know, when you have, when you have something that's taken away from you, it's very hard to get over that. And what, what, I've, what I've consistently told um, everyone in St. George's is that... Um, you know, the more that St. George's looks to expand, and, and we have planning submissions done now by the hotel, hotel. the mm -hmm. resort that's going on down the there. The in the pipeline. Precisely. The cruise ship. There's so many things going on there. So, you know, look, it... it um, doesn't that mean, doesn't, wouldn't that suggest then that there is a need for at least a full-time police presence? Precisely it's, right. And that's precisely right. But, but a full-time police station, no. I believe that there should well, be some... a full-time police presence in a scaled-down police station. Well, well, you have, look, you have in... Uh, yeah, a good a example would... story police station? A, a good example would be Dockyard. So right now, because Dockyard expanded so much because of the cruise ships, because of the amount of people, all of a sudden you had 2,000, 3,000 people walking around Dockyard. So, you know, that, that's, a, that's a great thing. And, you know, the restaurants get to, the, you know, the shops, everyone booms there. And so because of that, you, there has to be some type of additional police presence there. And although there is a police station in Somerset, you know, miles down the road. It, 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 and it's the same story in St. George's. You know, when we get to those levels in St. George's, which I'm confident that we will, I know the Minister of Tourism is confident, I know the Premier is very confident that we're going to be expanding uh, St. George's the MP of the area, of course, has been very, um, very active and energetic about all of that. Then I believe that we'll have something similar, uh, like a satellite station in St. George's, where someone can walk in, they can see a, uh, a police officer um, or member of the Bermuda Police Service on duty and say, hi, I'd like to say something to you. I'd like to, I'd like to, um, I need your help with something. Or can you tell me uh, X? I mean, th that's... I understand that's... your comparison with, with Dockyard, but what I don't, don't remember personally, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the same number of incidents in Dockyard that has been in St. George's in the last couple of years. Well, when you look at, if we compare and contrast, I don't have the figures right now for, for Dockyard, but I can tell you that in the last, um, in the last few months, you know, 
St. George's has been, um, apart from you know some of the robberies that have occurred down there, it, it, it's been very, uh, very quiet. And I can qualify that with numbers. So, but what I'm saying is, I don't remember armed robberies or robberies at all in Dockyard. Do you remember the shooting that happened in Dockyard? When was that? That was there was a few shootings in Dockyard. The first one in 2004, and then we had there were subsequent shootings in Dockyard. There were uh, there's a there's acquisitive crime that occurs because of the amount of people there. There are events held down there at licensed premises that often uh, require police attention. So you know I, I think again I, I've heard the call from St. George's and I want to ensure them that um, that I am committed to increasing the presence of the police service there and not just driving past them, stopping, walking around. But again, deployment of the policing is not is not up to me. I cannot, I cannot call the police station and say, hey guys, it's Jeff calling. I'd like you to go to St. George's and spend the day there. That no, is, you can provide the budget. Well, of course I do. And so you can provide the budget to make that happen, is what I'm saying. But at the, again, yes, at the end of the day, though, um, the, the budget that's supplied to the Bermuda Police Service has to fit in with their overall policing strategy. And what they're dealing with right now is um, significant amounts of antisocial behavior. They're dealing with... Um, you know, again, some of the things that we were talking about before, emerging uh, criminal networks in different areas. Now, because St. George's uh, is, uh, doesn't have some of those same issues, there's still antisocial behavior going on in St. George's, and I hear that from the residents. There's still, you know, young men um, hanging out outside of liquor store, um, some of them openly selling drugs, and they want to see the police down there. And I, wanna, I want to ensure that that happens. So, again, it's not about having a, uh, a, a permanent physical address right now, a police station right now in St. George's. It is about having the men and women of the police service there um, in a more visible way, in a more uh, sustained way. As I said before, part of it is reassurance, and, and it seems that the people there are not reassured. Well, you know, crime is both a feeling, uh, sorry, safety and security is a feeling, and it is a reality. And so, you know, I can stand up and tell the, uh, the members of Bermuda or St. George's, the community there, that you know, he, here's, here's all the crimes that have occurred in your area in, in the last few months. And, and compare that with Warwick, compare it with Pembroke, compare it with other places. And you know, the, the data alone might be able to provide some perspective on how uh, safe from that perspective that they are, how quiet St. George's actually is. But you can't tell them that after, you know, the robberies occurred in St. George's because that disrupts their feeling. It really does make them feel unsafe, and particularly um, uh, when, it ha when it occurs a few times in a month, which it did. Now, you know, we've had, uh, again, the 22nd of June was the last uh, armed robbery that we had in Bermuda, and it actually happened in St. George's. There, was, there were three men arrested for that. Yes. One, one appeared in court last week. So, um, you know, what we do know is that there aren't uh, troves of people in St. George's who are looking at committing robberies. There are a very small amount of people who are committing these types of acts. And the, the police, again, they got it right. They were there. They were there being just on duty. They didn't predict this happening. They were there because um, they answered the call to be more present. They heard the residents, and they were there, and they essentially you know, gave chase right away and, and uh, made those arrests. Changing tack. Um there's been a lot of talk, obviously, about the regiment and uh, conscription. The, uh, the, the wording of uh, the Defence Act was changed, obviously, 
to say where voluntary enlistment leaves a shortfall in the required number of members of the regiment, the Governor, after consulting the Minister and the Defence Board, may revise the role and responsibilities of the regiment to take account of the shortfall in numbers by providing for conscription. Is conscription actually ever going to be phased out? I'd like to think so, yeah. I, I, I th I'd when? like to think... <laughs> well, look, you because know... Because it's gone halfway there. You know, you rely almost on volunteers, but there is this provision, if you don't make it the numbers, you're going to see your name printed again and you're going to be called up. Yeah, and I, and I think... It's you know, not that, quite a commitment to ending conscription. You know, the, the challenge that we have, of course, and we've looked at, uh, there is a defence and national security review uh, that was conducted... Uh, which was a, a pretty comprehensive document. And I think the challenge that we have to admit is that uh, while I don't, I don't personally support conscription, um, I don't. And I've said that before, but I also, as a minister, um, have to be very clear about what our challenges are. And I, we, we frankly, um, we call upon the regiment um, to perform extraordinary tasks particularly with disaster management, disaster relief, and that requires um, assets, human assets. And so I think, you know, again, the, the, the spirit of that change was that, look, this is a, we've had conscription for a long time. Uh, we recognize that we want to get rid of it. But in the meantime, we have to make sure that this, this, um, this volunteer thing is going to work. I'm confident that it will. I'm confident that, you know, the more uh, that we're providing to the regiment as far as equipment and roles and responsibilities, that people are going to rightly look at the Bermuda Regiment as an attractive option as a career. And so, so that, that includes um, some of the boating responsibilities and maritime operations. I was going to come on to that later. So when can we see an end? Uh, when can we see the Defence Act 95 and 65 again? I beg your pardon, re-amended to take out conscription. How long will it have to take to prove that the regiment can be staffed purely from volunteers for you guys, for government, for this one or the next one, to be satisfied that you can end conscription? Well, I think those are conversations, again, you know, the, the, the governor of the day has the responsibility constitutionally for defence of the island. So as the minister, you know, while they can consult me and say, you know, this is what we'd like to do, um, I'd... I'd frankly like to see um, not only a boon in the amount of people who are applying for the regiment as full-time careers, but also those who are looking at this um, not just because of the, uh, the nice paycheck they get for volunteering. This is a career, it's a viable option. And so through conversations with the commanding officer, who, who frankly has really started off on a very, very positive, uh, positive foot. Um, I spent time with him in Jamaica, and we talked about this. And uh, I can share with you that he's he's aligned with um, getting as many volunteers as possible. He's aligned that you know the the regiment has a bigger role to play than just promoting uh, promulgating names in a paper and getting people in, giving them boots, and then taking them away three years later. This this should be a career option for many Bermudians, and I think that it's going to be. And so with further conversations with the CEO. Uh, with Government House, um, you know, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get there. So I think it's fair to say that you've left the door open on that one. Well, I mean, that's precisely what the, what the uh, Act did, you know, but again... I, so I, it was a promise to end conscription? And I'm committed, and I don't like conscription, but I've said that. So, you know, I, but right now what we have to do is ensure that 
when we have some type of um, crisis event, when we have some type of um, you know uh, something that the regiment have to respond to, that we will have um, that we will have that um, leadership in crisis times, and, and and right now it's it's being beta tested. You know, we've asked the volunteers to to step up, and they did last year, and 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 not only the volunteers. The, the, the men and women who are already serving wish to stay on longer. And so we're trying to do all we can to, to keep that going. So we can't just say, you know, look, I, I, you know, Barron doesn't like conscription, so I'm getting rid of it. And then we have some type of an event and then absolutely no or, or a feeble response to that event occurs. I, I, I don't think that's acceptable whatsoever for the wider public. And so it's funny how, you know, the, the regiment, when you do... Uh, some sort of, you know, a public popularity test. You know, if you ask people how they feel about the regiment after Gonzalo, it was, oh my goodness, they're they're the best thing ever. Sure. Uh, I want to, I want to, you know, As buy you said, them all an dinner. Thing, yeah. Well, it is, you know, and and I think, you know, uh, you know, the, the the longer we have good fortune, the the more we often forget the men and women in public safety because you don't need them. You know, we all love a police officer after they after you've called nine one one and and he or she's made you feel a bit safer. Having said that, I do wonder if, if you ask somebody whether you whether you thought conscription was an antiquated idea, or if they would say, how many would say yes, phrase like that. So, sorry, say that. So if you you say you say after a hurricane, yes, people love the regiment, yeah, fantastic. I wonder if you wait six months and put the question to him, do you think conscription is an antiquated idea? I wonder what the answer would be. There. Well, look, I, I think that the two are separate issues altogether. I still think that you know when, when um, you know there are vol- there are many volunteers who were out uh, during Gonzalo uh, and and Faye. So, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, they're, they're two separate matters altogether. It's just the bottom line is that we had um, that absolute guarantee of the embodiment when we had that that major event. You know, we had people from the UK carrier ship uh, on roofs as well, helping Bermudians out. So, you know, we recognize that if we are, uh, if business continuity in Bermuda is important to us, then getting as many people out as possible who are qualified to hold, um, you know, not just a weapon, but a chainsaw to to help out the community, to cut down trees so the buses can run, so that kids can get to school. So that businesses can reopen, if we recognize that resilience is a part of what Bermuda is, then we have to have that public safety that 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 uh, product, and, and the regiment fills a major role in that. Um, you mentioned the uh, defence review. Um, is is there any thought being given to moving away from a land-based um, force to to a maritime force? Sure, we're going to look at um, you know providing and enhancing the role of the regiment. Um, in a maritime role, in, in looking at various options now, we've had a cabinet discussion about it. That was act, that actually occurred before I was in cabinet, but I, I do I do know that the cabinet had discussed um, the viability of having the regiments take over the maritime options uh, completely. Is, is that going to happen? You said that was before you were in cabinet. So yes, some time ago. Yeah, I, so have I, things progressing. Well, they are. They're progressing uh, uh, nicely, I would say. You know, we're speaking more with the CEO. I mean, we want to get we want to get the regiment uh, to be as present as possible uh, alongside the, the police, not just for the America's Cup. Not just obviously in, in terms of maritime. Perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I think you know, I spent the day uh, with the uh, Marine Police and other officers um, uh, last week. And I can share with you that, that you know that some of the most professional officers are those who are actually 
protecting our waters. So, you know, what I took away from that day was, you know, an appreciation for what they do now and how they're going to really get uh, the regiment uh, up to speed. Because, again, it's not about can you drive a boat, do you know where the reefs are? It's really about this new... Um, set of challenges that we have now on our waters, and exactly. that, that's beyond America's Cup. Yes, you know that's completely yeah. that. That's America's Cup has provided um, the the Ministry of National Security with a very interesting set of conversations and contingency plans. Now that we have to think about all types of of uh, risks, we have to think about all those types of things. And so, you know, our National Disaster Coordinator, Inspector Kasham, has done a fantastic job with with uh, beginning um, last year of uh, setting some plans up uh, and looking at how what we have now can fit into that and what we need and where we need to expand. So, you know, the the, uh, the police are doing a fantastic job with what they're doing on the water, but it, there's, they're going to have to, uh, there's going to have to be a professional hand-holding session for a while to get the regiment to where the police are now. So that's going to happen. There'll be a significant part of the regiment yes, the maritime base. Yes, absolutely. And that, that's going to be, uh, we're hoping, um, it's only going to assist with the... Will uh, they have the equipment necessary? What kind of, what kind of things yeah, are absolutely. to do? Sure. I mean, well, look, if we're asking them to patrol our waters, um, you know, to, to well, whatever extent... Or, or further, further afield? You know, we're, you know, inshore. as far as mileage, yeah, it's, it'll, it'll, it'll be inshore. You know, but we'll still continue with our... Um, with our relationships with Coast Guard and with the UK uh, Navy. So, uh, you know, that's not going to change. But if we're asking the regiment to take on a new role, then certainly, again, they have to have the equipment to be able to do that. So, um, you know, some of it may be new purchases, some of it may be a transfer of those assets. Um, all those things are on the table to be discussed and how, and, and how that actually occurs, because the police will still have to control uh, some of those assets during this handover period. But, you know, again, these, the, the, we have to sit down again, the commissioner of police, the commanding officer of the regiment, uh, the subject matter folks within my ministry have to sit down and discuss just how that's going to look. Because we, what we don't do um, are anything symbolic sort of like moves or, or, you know, tick in the box, hey, we did this so we can, we can cheer that. We have to make sure it's done right. And I think, you know, giving the regiment... Um, or charging them, frankly, with the role of uh, maritime security is the right one. And I think that it's going to help out with recruitment for the regiment because, it's again, it's an attractive option and it's, a, it's an honorable job. Have you, have you got a rough timeline for that? Uh, I don't. I can, get, I can get a rough timeline for you. I mean, I, I'm, I'd like to see the, um, the hand-holding hand sessions, you know, in the next few months. I'd like to see by America's Cup which, of course, is next June, uh, that the regiment and the police will be working together on the waters. And after the America's Cup, maybe just the regiment indeed. working on the waters. Indeed. But again, those are, those are subject to further uh, discussions based on how, you know, the debriefs of how these things are going. You know, we may find out that it's going to take a little bit more time uh, getting um, the regiment up to speed with uh, some of those issues that we didn't foresee. You know, we have to just get them out in the water with the police to be able to gauge that. So well, we, the idea then to utilize those the police officers in the in the marine section on land, or would the marine officers continue in their role? Again, that's a matter for the for the police commissioner of where he puts uh, the officers now who are currently working in the marine police. But again, I don't think this isn't something that we just turn the switch and all of a sudden. 
you know, we take boat keys from someone and say, okay, well, by the way, thanks for coming to work, but you're going to be walking the beat now in Hamilton. No, I understand that, but it, it, it'd be good to get some sort of clarity as whether the police presence on land is going to be enforced if the regiment is going to take over those roles. A absolutely, you know, and again, that, that would only, that would only uh, aid with the uh, deployment needs that the police have. And so, you know, whether you it is... You've full-time presence at St George's. <laughs> there you are. Um, road safety is, everybody probably knows, is a bit of a bugbear of mine. Um, where are you, the ministry, with the road safety strategy? You know, we've spoken to the police many times about their their road safety strategy. We've we've taken part in uh, the public forums that they had. Um, and while, I guess, technically speaking, um, the road safety would fall under the Ministry of Transport, um, I, I certainly have a beyond vested interest in ensuring that there's a no criminal use of the roads, uh, and b that we're not uh, continuing to pick up uh, Bermudians uh, who have been injured or killed on the roads. I mean, you know, the, we, the, the, the driving behavior that mm. we witness is, uh, is often shocking. On the way here, I actually got cut up by a bike on the pavement waiting to cross the road. While you were walking? No, I was standing oh. still. <laughs> and a guy drove in front of me, missing me by inches as I was waiting to cross the road. Now, I know, I know you, that's, that's probably more a matter for education and transport, uh, but police obviously have a vital role to play in road safety, sure. even if it's things like breathalysers yeah. or uh, road safety cameras, both of which have been talked about ad nauseum for I don't know how long, and we don't see any progress. And yet, from, look, from the outside looking in, it seems like a no-brainer. What's holding all these things up? Well, that's the frustrating part. I think you know the, the, the population would say, look, what, what's going on with with uh, these discussions and you know what what I can say is that the the police all of the uh, uh, if you will the uh, the folks that are going to be involved in uh, not just enforcing sort of like a roadside sobriety but also crafting the legislation to make sure that we get it right um, there's the, been talk about le crafting legislation for years the minute the Ministry of Transport um, was on the radio some time ago, talking about yes, he wants to progress talks about breathalyzers, sure. but it's more talking. Yeah, I get that, and and I can't say uh, as far as what the minister is doing currently, but what I can say is that I I know that um, the stages of the discussions are literally at looking over uh, where the legislation is. So it's 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 being um, the legislation hasn't changed recently. So no, that's right. And again, that's the frustrating part. You know, th these things never happen quick enough, but we, we have to make sure that we just get this right because there's, there are so many different agencies who, who are, who are uh, invested in, you know, what we're doing as far as a roadside sobriety policy for Bermuda. You know, the, you have the DPP, who's just getting, he's, he's new, he's getting up to speed. I think he has his views on how and if this should happen. Um, we have CADA, we have Roads, Road, Road Safety, Safety Council, Council, we yeah. have the Bermuda Police Service, we have the ministry, subject matter folks, the minister himself. You know, there's so many people who are involved in making sure that, you know, whatever we're doing, this is going to, uh, this is going to help out and this is how it's going to help out. I don't think it's... Well, those just groups have been around for a very long time and the discussions have been around for a very long time, but nothing's actually happened. Well, you'd have to speak to them about what the, what the, the, the perceived lag is, but at the end of the day... You know, what we, well, I, I, I can. They're getting very frustrated with the ministries. <laughs> well, well, then again, you say ministries plural. What, what I can say is that I, whatever 
whatever need is needed from the Ministry of National Security as far as providing not just the people to, to attend and give their, their expert opinion on that. You know, the police can go and they'll say, here's, here's what we'd like to see. There, and I can share, there's an appetite for these things. The, the, the police don't want um, people to be driving drunk on the roads. And I, don't think, I think from a starting point, no one does. How that's actually enforced is something that's really important because what we can't do is just set up something that's going to expose the police um, to any further infringements, whether it's someone's personal rights, human rights, whatever it is. So they have to make sure they get that light, that right. Uh, it's pretty legal. easy. You just choose every seven cars. Again, those are conversations that are being had, and and, and the viability of that with the police um, and and all the other agencies that's currently ongoing. So how long are we going to have to wait? That's a great question. I, again, I would ask. <laughs> I, I would ask the uh, the ministry, but I, I'm I'm. Well, no, because part of it is your side as well. Yeah, the ministry transfers the say, but you're the police going to be in charge of the breathalyzers, the road safety cameras, speed cameras, etc. That's right. And once they get that directive, once they get that legal directive, they will have to. They would have been a part of that process, and that's precisely when they would begin those operations. And that's the, precisely when nine road deaths this year. Oh, we're in August. Um, if there had been nine gang murders, how many resource, how much resources would have been put into that? We speculate, but I, again, I take your point. You know, there are, and that's important to make because you know, this talks that talks about you know a lot of the what gets attention in Bermuda and what doesn't get attention. So, you know, while we're seeing a drop in you know the firearms fatalities and injuries uh, year over year. Um, we're not seeing a tremendous amount of drops in road fatalities. And yet you have these strategies to deal with gang-related crimes and gangsters, we which, do. as you've said, you've cut the numbers of we gangsters do. by 150, but we're seeing a continuation of the same kind of numbers of people dying on the roads. And the demographic is between, the, I think, the ages of 19 and 45, statistically the most common yeah, person it, to die. It, it, well, that's it. It's a, it's a bigger demographic, but a lot of it has to do... Um, and there's also more reasons why those things are occurring. Now, again, I don't want to get philosophical about uh, about why these things happen versus why um, you know gang violence occurs. But at the end of the day, you're right. The numbers are uh, high, and they're and they're and they're consistently high, despite having uh, an increased uh, visibility on the roads, a policing strategy that deals directly with this and how to disrupt it. At the end of the day, Jeremy, if someone gets on a bike, puts a key in the ignition, and says, I want to drive from here to there, and they do so recklessly, um, then you know, that, is, that is on them. We cannot continue to say, you know, look, you, you know, your, your experience you're putting, today... You're putting an enormous amount of resources uh, to try and say to these guys who are in school uniforms, in these pictures of being members of gangs, right. saying, choose a different lifestyle. That's right. You bring those resources in, but the same thing happens. It's a lifestyle choice if you get on your bike or your car drunk. That's right. We ha and we have. We have the Road Safety Council out at Cup Match giving out you know, their talks. You have CADA doing the same thing. The Bermuda, Bermuda Police Service do the same thing. Um, there's uh, talks in schools. There's all kinds of things. At the end of the day, we, we can't absolve the men and women who are given a, uh, a license who choose to drive uh, in, in a reckless manner. There's no question of absolving them, no. Absolutely not. So I'm, I, not I, I'm not questioning that, the, that, that there's no question that they should be absolved. But we can't it's a question so of we, how to change their mindset as you're trying to change the mindset of young kids who want to join gangs. Again, it's precisely uh, uh, a lot what we've done with the with the uh, the gang reduction strategy. You know, we can't say, 
you know, more cops in the road. That's not going to help the matter. No, I'm, I'm just talking about resources, it's, the level of resources. It's, an, edu it's an education uh, thing. It is a social engagement thing. It is immobilizing and empowering them um, with how they're actually reaching out to some of these uh, more uh, prolific offenders, if you will. You know, now that we have... Uh, more data at our hands because we have CCTV island wide. We can actually look at driving behaviors of certain uh, of certain individuals. Um, you know, we should be able to have those conversations with them and really target them as well. And and, and so we have to get away from just saying, you know, we need more police out there. The police have to crack down. Or we need roadside sobriety because that's not going to. No, clearly, it's that, one. It's a one. It's one of many things you have to do. That's right. The fact you, is, you know, you were, done, you were, you were, you were standing still today at nine thirty in the morning, say, and someone almost hit you in the middle of the road. You know, the no, it was on the pavement. There you go, on the pavement. So you know, uh, at the end of the day, none of those, none of those things would have would have helped out. And and at the end of the day, we have to no, I, continue I to remind. It's, it's one or two of a multitude of things you have to do, but. I think we've made the point. We've had the discussion. It's, it, it's a whole of community thing, though. I mean, we have to we have to get beyond the you know what you know, we the the actual uh, equipment side and the policing side of it. We have to the, the public themselves uh, having a driving license is a privilege. It's not a right. You don't turn 16 and it comes in the mail. You have to then go and satisfy uh, someone that you're able to do that. You're responsible to do that. And it turns out that you know whether you show off or whatever, you know you make mistakes. You get ticketed. Could, can there be more, uh, in, uh, you know, robust enforcement beyond these? There always can be, but at the end of the day, we need to be able to curb behavior, not catch and convict. That is not what we want to do. Just um, wrapping up the wrapping up the interview a little bit now. We're done already. Come on, well, let's go. Let's let's go through lunch. You haven't you haven't you haven't <laughs> been a minister for for that long. I have not. Um, will you be seeking uh, election as an MP? Then, yes, then, the general election. Yeah, I intend to uh, to sit in the House of Assembly next. Uh, if, if yes, precisely right. <laughs> Any idea which seat? I do not know. Which I don't. I, you know, I think, uh, again, um, I'm so focused on uh, what I'm doing right now. And I think, you know, again, as I shared with you in the beginning, um, one of the surprising things is how uh, excited I am to come in and, and tackle some of these challenges. And, and look, there, some of them are very emotionally tough to deal with. But at the end of the day, uh, I'm so focused on what I'm doing now, and that's appropriate because I I'm not, um, you know, the, the public doesn't expect me to be focused on anything else but the challenges that are before me right now. And so, you know, I, of course, I, I believe that uh, I will be uh, in uh, Parliament in the next few years. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm confident about, you know, my place in politics. I'm not going anywhere. And uh, things happen in politics, but at the end of the day, uh, I think that if I can bring the same level uh, of uh, energy and excitement to what I'm doing now and to anything else, then, then uh, I'll be here for a while. On that note, Mr. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for tuning in to Burn News Current Affairs Podcast with Jeremy Deacon. Listen at your leisure on www.burnnews.com, your 24-7 Bermuda news source.